Hello, my magical friends. My name is Ayumi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and you're listening to Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Whether it's your first or 71st time listening, we welcome you to our space to celebrate magical girls from every corner of the world. We have a lot of news today, so let's get right on to it. So usually I also talk about what I've been watching. While I have been watching Tropical Rouge Precure Kirameki Powers and watch a Primaji every Sunday as always, there isn't really a lot else to talk about with that. So I decided that because there's a lot of news, we're just going to move right along to that. So the first bit of news about, yes, two weeks ago, we had announced that there is a new Magical Boy comic called uh, Momopri. I'm excited to announce there is a new magical girl comic called the magical girl incident in this one we have a businessman who has been struggling with daily life at his office and feeling like he doesn't have any motivation in life and when he was a child he had always dreamt of being a hero and one day he decides he can be the hero and that's when he becomes a magical girl It seems to be a little bit of a parody as well, but yeah, there's just one issue out so far, so we still have a long ways to go before we fully understand what's going on, but yeah, that's also a thing. Next, Retro Crush announced that they are going to be bringing the 80s Magical Girl series, Magical Emmy the Magical Star, to their streaming service starting December 22nd. So this is both the originally airing series as well as the OAVs. So if you have Retro Crush, congratulations, you can go check that out. If not, you might want to go hit up that site if you're interested in watching the series. Before this, it was very, very hard to find this particular series from what I understand, uh, talking to other Magical Girl fans in at least uh, North America. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. Next, back when Magia Record was announcing their second season earlier this uh, summer, they had also announced that there would be a final season, which was originally scheduled to come out at the end of 2021. Well, this week they've announced that unfortunately, they're going to have to delay this final season to spring of 2022. And since we're talking about spring 2022 series, I haven't mentioned it yet on the podcast, but for anyone who has somehow not yet heard about it, if you're a fan of this series, The Demon Girl Next Door, or Machikado Mazoku, is going to have a second season in April as well. So we have some new magical girls to look out for at that time. So that's pretty exciting. That's all the news for today, so let's move on to today's topic. All right, so today we are talking about a shorter series from 2012. It is Symphagear, specifically the first season of Symphagear. As of this recording, I still have not watched any later seasons. So uh, luckily there will be zero spoilers for any, any later iterations of the show. But this is a series that currently has, I believe, five seasons out now. Each one is about 13 episodes. So it is a short form boys magical girl series. So this 
podcast has been rated explicit. This is due to the nature of the show itself. We don't go into a lot of detail about it in the actual episode itself, but I do want to warn for anyone who has not watched the series yet that there are mentions of sexual violence. As far as the actual conversation today, we also mention torture, yes, torture and gaslighting, death, uh, and things like that. So keep that in mind as you listen to today's episode. And again, this is due to the nature of this series, an explicit episode. So please uh, be mindful if you are underage or if you usually listen with young ones. Okay, very lucky to have a returning guest today. Renny Josanis is a webcomic creator. So we had Renny on quite a while back to talk about her original series, Cape Blast. And she is now co-hosting a webcomic themed podcast called Screen Tones, which is super awesome. I listen every week and I recommend you do the same if you are interested in webcomics. Not all the ones I talk about are Magical Girls, of course, but it is a bunch of webcomic creators who talk about this particular section of media. So I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, so that's all I have to mention up top here. Again, please be warned that this is going to be a little bit of a heavy conversation. So please keep that in mind as you listen. And yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation about the first season of Symphagear with Renny Jusenis. are here to talk about the first season of Senkiza Show Symphogear, or just Symphogear, and I'm very excited for our returning guest. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I am Renny Jasanis. I use Shibe pronouns. I am a webcomic creator of the Magical Girl variety, and uh, also work on a uh, webcomic podcast on myself called Screen Tones. Yes, yes. Everyone should go listen to it. But yeah, you were here quite a while back to talk about your story, Mm -hmm. Cape Blast, which is finally back as of last month. So that's awesome. Yeah, we're back from hiatus, which is super exciting. And I'm very excited for some of the some of the new transformations that that are coming. It's great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're here to talk about Symphagear, which I believe you did name drop when you were on before. But before we get to that... What have you been watching this year in Magical Girls or reading or whatever? <laughs> yeah, so I started watching Blue Reflection Ray. Uh, I'm a couple episodes in so far, so I'm going to save my thoughts. And I know that's also been on a lot of folks' radar for this show as well. I've mostly been doing a lot of reading of things lately. Um, I'm just about finishing up with Cosmo Familia, which is Magical Girl adjacent. I started reading Goodbye Battle Princess Peony, which is a Magical Girl Warrior comic from Mira Angchua. Hmm. I'm going through a reread of Agents of the Realm, which is a web a Magical Girl webcomic by Mildred yes. Lewis, which is great. So good. And I just also finished reading the Magical Girl Raising Project manga, which hmm. was a time. I will definitely say it's not for everyone. <laughs> But it has some some interesting stylistic choices. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. So you read the the comic, not the novel. That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So mostly mostly the manga, which is two volumes, hmm. which I think is 
a perfect dose for how heavy that show is. Oh, yeah. It is quite heavy. (laughs) Do you think that you would want to read any of the later iterations? Because there are a lot of books that have not been readapted in any way. Yeah. Personally, I did find the subject matter of that very heavy. And I think, you know, I probably personally wouldn't jump into it just because I know it's not necessarily, you know, the kind of heavy stuff that's for me. Hmm. But yeah, I have a huge reading list anyways. So (laughs) (laughs) that's valid. Yeah. (laughs) Great. So yeah, we're here to talk about Symphagear. So yes, what is your history with this series in particular? So I first watched Symphogear probably in like 2017. Hmm. I am personally very passionate about the combination of music and storytelling. I am the person that like the very first thing I will do is like go and like binge listen to all the soundtracks of everything. And the more integrated in the story, the better. And through like sort of looking into like shows and pieces of media that do that, I stumbled upon Symphogear and went in and watched and immediately sort of fell in love with the show purely based initially on how integrated and important music is to the show, to the storytelling and to the action. Hmm. And that really sort of crafted uh, the way I approach storytelling myself, which was fun. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that's where I sort of fell into it and then took me a little while to watch more of the later seasons because ADHD is great but <laughs> I started talking about it with a couple other friends who are very passionate also about music and storytelling and uh, watched season two with a couple people and it was great um, it's a very fun show to sort of like digest and talk about because there is a lot <laughs> mm. Yeah, it definitely is a very fascinating series for a lot of reasons. So this series came out, the first season, as we're going to talk about today, came out in 2012. It was not adapted from anything. It was just its own original story from uh, Satellite Animation. And I think it's such a fascinating series for a lot of reasons. I think that the timing of it, it's really important to recognize uh what was happening just before with Magical Girls. So, you know, of course, when it comes to the 2010s and the more older audience targeted Magical Girls series, it kicked off in 2011 with Madoka. But also in that year, we started to get like really, really heavy hitters in Precure because we had Sweet Precure and Hard Catch Precure, which are both super solid seasons. Of course, Sweet Precure is also a musical themed Magical Girl series, and I think that there's some service level seemingly very connected things between those two seasons. I think most of the things that might look like connections are more just because they are both musical Magical Girls. Yeah. You know, characters sharing the same name and stuff like that. It's just like, well, that you can only use the same pun so many times. <laughs> but um, in terms of like the themes and stuff, I think that it's worth mentioning that that was kind of already in the zeitgeist because even for hard catch precure which had come out previous to that there were a lot of musical themes to that season even though music was not technically a theme of that season if that makes sense yeah yeah and i think that it's you know sort of tapping into a lot of the darker side of magical girls was definitely like the thing you know obviously madoka wasn't necessarily the first one to do it but Mm -hmm. it really kicked off sort of a wave of those darker magical girl stories 
to varying degrees of you know darkness you know near or you know over the top for adults um where you see you know Madoka, you see a magical girl raising project coming out you know more later in the in the decade you see kill the kill coming out you know around 2014 2015 so it's like it's in the heart of that era of where the big trend in anime was that telling the sort of the more darker side hmm. there are a lot of aspects of that that i am personally gravitated towards because you know one of the things that i personally love in a lot of magical girl stories is i know there's the overarching trope of you know once the fight's done you know everything's wiped clean and nobody knows that the fight happened and it's great and the kids shows that's nice and clean and neat but when you get, start getting into those more mature audiences you can start talking about the okay well the magical girl still had that fight they still almost died what are they going through because of that in a world where no one else knows that happens? Mm-hmm. That is also the case in Symphogear to a much lesser extent because it's, there's no magical, you know, sort of wiping of the slate protecting people. It's, you know, the shadowy government basically being like, you're going to be quiet because we tell you to be quiet. Mm-hmm. So it's this the same sort of energy of basically having this super important and kind of traumatic fight thing that you are being forced to do and you can't talk about it with anyone because either you're not allowed or everyone will think you're crazy mm-hmm. and i think that was the trend around this time tapping into that sort of that energy yeah definitely and i think that it's really fascinating to see like this particular series it is a bit darker it also has like very heavy sci-fi elements which are very similar to Lyrical Nanoha, which also mm-hmm. shares like a lead of voice actress. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, also in Precure as well. But yeah, like it's interesting to see the kind of, I guess, the balance of magic and science fiction. And then, yeah, the use of music is very strong in a way that's kind of different even from other series. Because like one thing that really makes this series unique is, of course, they have a, you know, transformation sequence is pretty interesting it was very similar to me to the ones used in i believe i can't remember if it's in my hime first or in my otome but in that particular series they have a kind of similar thing of like two bodies coming together in their transformation sequence Mm. and uh, another thing of course that's very important like you said you know music being the theme here they have to sing in order to fight and i think that's really interesting to like combine the action and song yeah because that for me is very unique to this series because like there are other singing magical girls like it hadn't happened yet in Gear, but it does happen later where there are you know songs that are used to uh, fight with but also in previous shows like mermaid melody that also has the same thing where it's like the idol's singing a song to defeat evil but when they're singing they're just singing like literally in a bubble and it's not really you know like obviously (laughs) it's a very powerful song that's awesome uh you know music is powerful but it's a very different scenario yeah 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 definitely and like i think that there's a ton of crossover between uh, a lot of idol shows and a lot and magical girls and i think sinful gear definitely falls into what i call the, the holy trinity of uh, <laughs> magical girl mecca and idol all wrapped into one yeah where you have all those elements but you did touch on it with the songs powering the fights and one of the things that makes sinful gear sort of stand out and a little more different from a lot of the other series is so in Sympho Gear, all the magical girls are wearers of the Sympho Gears that give them their the powers to basically that they use to fight. 
And those gears are powered on something they call phonic gain, which is basically the power of song. So in order for them to keep fighting, they have to keep singing throughout their fight, which in the show leads to some really interesting thematic things going on where you have them singing the song. The song lyrics are matching up with what is happening on the screen or in the subtext. Hmm. So there's always a lot to pick out there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really fascinating, this uh, combination of, of all these different themes. And okay, I'm not going to lie. I'm not like really huge on Mecca, but I do like science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that it's really interesting to see the, you know, the combination of yeah science fiction and magical girls. I mean, they've existed like Cutie Honey was an android, but like, yeah, you know, it's it's the the very particular way that like, when things happen in the first the first episode when Hibikipi becomes a magical girl for the first time you're like seeing this change in her very dna and it's like so intense and very visceral in its imagery in a way that's really interesting and i think that it's also very interesting to see like because this is definitely a show for an older audience it is mm-hmm. quite bloody um and all of that but it still has this like very definite core of like the power of love and friendship that is uh, always very important theme for many magical girls regardless of the target audience yeah and that's that theme of you know the power of friendship is really the core theme of the entire first season and you see that in basically every single episode there is at least one moment where that comes up and hibiki the main character in symphogear really is the embodiment of that, you know, fighting for the power of friendship. You'll see in several fights where, like, Hibiki will be fighting. The main enemy that are fought in Symphogear are these things called noise, which are basically these monsters made from sound where basically being pulled from, uh, you know, this other space. And anyone who tries to sort of interact with them is turned to ash and dust. But the gear wielders can actually fight them and, and you know disrupt them but you'll see basically whenever Hibiki is fighting someone who is not noise who is not one of these you know abstract creatures her approach isn't to like all right you're creating these I'm gonna I'm gonna fight you her her first instinct is you seem to be going through a lot let me give you a hug um <laughs> so like that power of friendship is just so important to this series in general especially with Hibiki and especially with the people closest to Hibiki, you know, those being Subasa, Chris and Miku. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's very lovely to see. And you can tell that, you know, Hibiki is the main character because she is that quintessential magical girl who cannot help herself, but try to just be friends with absolutely everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's very, very interesting to see how being a magical girl affects her. But let's get into the story a little bit, just in case for anyone who has not watched the series. This is, I think, something that happens a lot with the older series and like the short form series where it opens with the last scene <laughs> where you yeah. know, the first thing you see is this girl with green hair. You don't know her name yet. And she's like riding a bus. Clearly, there's been a lot of like terrible things happening around her and they're like injured people on the bus and stuff. Like clearly a lot has just happened. And then she arrives at a gravesite for this girl 
Hibiki, who is our main character. And so it's this thing where it starts off showing you like right away, like this is going to be dark. Yes. Yeah. The first episode very much sets the tone very Mm -hmm. quickly. Yes. Where, because, you know, it opens with that graveyard scene and then goes right straight into, you know, a concert scene, which also, you know, where you start to see sort of the musical elements in the show. Mm -hmm. With the other deuteragonist, uh, Tsubasa, and her partner at the time, Kanade, are making up this, you know, magical idol duo. And Hibiki basically is at this concert because, you know, her friend told her to go and she went. And at this concert, things go bad very quickly and we are i think the way that the first episode was executed to basically start introducing the viewers to the magical powers sort of how they're activated how they work was very well executed as far as you know teaching okay this is how this tech works Mm -hmm. in a very show don't tell kind of way Mm. but it absolutely sets the tone right off the bat this opening scene is very dark a lot of people end up getting killed, and uh, through this fight, Hibiki ends up getting injured. Mm-hmm. In this fight, Kanade dies, and this has a huge impact on Subasa and how Subasa approaches life and you know, fighting in general. Yeah, exactly. It's very interesting to set the tone for like, it's, this is all like a flashback, basically, because it's like, so it's been two years since that happened, and we're seeing like, all these different things. So yeah, you know, Hibiki just being like a regular girl who was just going to see an idol show and like suddenly gets right in the middle of this huge battle. And, you know, um, she's able to recognize what's going on kind of in terms of like who is fighting and things like that. Cause it's not like everyone knows that these idols are also warriors fighting. the No. And that, and that's like also tying back to, you know, secret shadowy government being basically like, you can't talk about this, you know, like, and anyone who sees sort of the idols, you know, Mm -hmm. don't really get to walk away without, you know, getting that. Um, And Hibiki was kind of an exception in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also because they were kind of a sole survivor situation too, which I think that plays a role throughout the, throughout the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So Tsubasa was not necessarily depending on Kanade to be there for her, but it's just like she was doing this as a duo and suddenly her partner is gone and she has to like live with that trauma, but doesn't really have anyone to talk to about it because for a while, she is the only magical girl, like we can assume for the last two years she's been by herself. And then, yeah, Hibiki comes along and she's able to unlock this power because she had this, like, the remaining piece of this uh, symphony gear inside her. Not that she knew about it, but, like, it, like, just happened to happen that she was in a situation where she was trying to protect a, a child she didn't even know. And she's, like, surrounded by noise. And it is very scary because, like, when you see what happens to people when they get touched by noise, it is very serious. Like, it is dramatic. <laughs> it's a very dramatic kind of death. So, you know, it is very scary. And very painful. Yeah. <laughs> but then, like, it's reflected, too, in Hibiki's first transformation, where, like, when you say it's inside of her, we don't mean the, the metaphorical, oh, you had it inside of you all along. No, no, it's it's literally uh, embedded in her, her her heart. Yeah. And they cannot remove it surgically. <laughs> so yep. um, every all the transformations are definitely over the top, but Hibiki takes the cake as far as, like, 
since it's so embedded in her as a person, you see her first transformation has this extremely dark overtone of physically changing her cells and getting in her veins and like really embedding it in her. Yeah. On who she is. And her first transformation is actually quite painful. Mm -hmm. And that's shown very viscerally at the end of the first episode. Yeah, it was very intense to watch. So it was like, wait, what are we watching? Like, I was very, um, very taken aback. Like, you know, obviously I can handle some, you know, violence in shows and stuff. But to see that this transformation, I was like, is this like going to always be the case for her? That it's always painful? It looks like it's just the first time after that. It's either she's used to it or something. I'm not sure. But um, it's only the first time like that it's actually changing her physically yeah yeah but also like that theme repeats itself too where in i think it's episode four um they do a flashback to show how kanade got her powers and mm-hmm. you know while some people are sort of you know sort of born with sort of a natural ability and a natural way to attune to the relics and sort of give them these powers kanade very much was like training for it um through lots of you know there's lots of blood she's you know basically almost dying and the amount of blood in this show is a lot yeah it's definitely over the top so if blood is something that makes you squeamish you know might not be for you but (laughs) it's very much you know kind of day's theme is you know fighting through the pain to get the thing that she wants Hmm. while at first like it's it's you know sort of revealed that you know what's motivating her is you know revenge and sort of getting that you know it's after that it you know it's really shown that her motivations changed from that to, you know, I want to fight alongside you, Subasa. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things in the Kanade Subasa relationship that are very much mirrored in the Subasa Hibiki relationship. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see the way that it kind of goes along because like, yeah, Hibiki is all aboard being the magical girl. Like, you know, despite the pain the first time around, she like sees it's important she sees that, you know, there's there's terrible thing going on with this noise and yet she's here. So she wants to be able to do something about it. It is a really tough thing because like we said, you know, friendship is a very strong part of this series. But for her, like her best friend in the whole world, her roommate at the Lydian Academy is uh, uh, Miku, who is unable to understand what's going on. Like she knows something's up, but yeah, Hibiki won't tell her. So there's this strain as she watches her best friend like clearly become fatigued with something that she refuses to tell her about and it really has a lot of strain in their friendship of course but I think that it is because they're friends that like you know Hibiki wants to protect her from the secret also she's not allowed to tell (laughs) of course yeah but yeah it's uh it's very interesting yeah, it is. There's a lot of subtext with uh, the Hibiki and Mika relationship. Oh, you yeah. could read into a lot of different ways. They were roommates, sure. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> but that theme where, you know, a lot of Tsubasa after Kanade's death is very much, you know, taking it very hard on herself. Hmm training herself to be this, you know, she goes into third person a couple of times of Tsubasa is a warrior who has trained herself into a sword. She says that a lot. And it's, you know, she's taking this all on herself. And Hibiki also does that to an extent with Miku to sort of try and protect Miku. But 
it ends up causing more strain because Hibiki is taking all of this on by herself, mm-hmm. essentially. And throughout the course of the first season, like that theme of you're not alone. You shouldn't have to fight these demons alone, be them physical or mental. And mm. the theme of no one is too broken to be undeserving of love. Like all those themes really roll up in with those three of, well, those four, because, you know, we're introduced to the third magical girl in uh, season one, Chris, who also has, you know, very dark, very angsty backstory. Yeah. Very much in the someone who has been broken and Mm -hmm. is feeling betrayed by the world. So it's that feeling is very much present in everyone but Hibiki. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Miku feels betrayed by Hibiki when Hibiki, you know, doesn't tell her what's going on. Tsubasa feels betrayed by, you know, not being able to protect Kanade. And Chris feels betrayed basically by freaking everyone yeah. um so i that that theme very much is ever present and mm. everyone except hibiki who is like you know yeah you know this happened but let's fight through it and be friends mm-hmm. <laughs> you know fighting through it with a smile yeah but it also you know still does have an impact on her and that impact is seen very much in sort of the the darker side of hibiki where you see it come out a couple times and it's very present in the end of the show where Hibiki has sort of this dark presence as part of her powers. Oh, yeah. That takes over from time to time. And uh, towards the end of season one, without getting to too much spoilers, it basically becomes a fight of fighting for control of who Hibiki is. Mm -hmm. Whether it's this dark element where basically she's like lets all those dark things and those bad things sort of pile up inside of her and then releases them in this extremely dark way. Hmm. Yeah, it is like I think they refer to as like specifically she's going berserk, but like, yeah, it reminds me of Kingdom Hearts. yes you're yeah right. in kingdom hearts 2 and you go anti sora that is the same kind of thing going on you're very strong but you lose control of a lot of basic functions in and that lose form. basically who you are in that yeah. moment and it it is very interesting to see because yeah she is so good so so hard working she really really wants to be this like ideal friend ideal magical girl and then when she gets into this thing it's like it's also interesting like what drives her to it it's always something to do with like her feelings about her friendships that drive her to going berserk and then she takes it out on whoever is there which if she's lucky is noise and so it works out in her favor but it's not necessarily always the case no yeah but yeah chris is such an interesting magical girl also because she is a the classic like introduces a villain character who later gets uh, to the side of good gotta love those redemption arcs yeah <laughs> the redemption character is now like at this point becoming a kind of standard in shows like precure and certainly it's a pretty interesting extreme as well because like she has her own symphony gear but when she first appears she is actually using a different item instead which she then like gives up to first just like not be evil but then later is like oh actually i'll be on the side of good too but like it takes a while in between before she she actually makes it over and becomes a full-fledged member of the team she has a lot to go through for sure 
there's a lot of emotional baggage that yes. needs to be unpacked. Yes, yes. And I think that like a lot of that starts getting un- unpacked for her when she starts actually interacting with people who are treating her like she is d- deserving of be of recovery, mm. of moving forward, whether it's Hibiki or uh, Section Two, and it's you know just everyone be- trying to help her even if she doesn't want it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, I like Chris a lot. I think it's very interesting. I mean, it is, it's a kind of classic redemption story in a lot of ways, but definitely her emotional back, like you said, is very intense. Even within the series itself, we see her go through a lot of torture at the hands of mm. our villain, who we haven't talked about yet, who we'll get to in a minute, but um, <laughs> yeah. So the villain is very much leaning in on sort of the sa- similar energy that we've played here. In the rest of the show, so it's very much, you know, a prominent foil, and I won't go too much into who she is and her deal, because that's a very late game season one spoiler. Mm -hmm. So she starts to be teased around episode two or three, Mm -hmm. with more ramping up once Chris is introduced, because Chris basically sees the main villain, Fine, as the, the one person I can trust, the one person who has done good by me, and she's basically cast aside by Fine as like no I don't need you anymore Mm -hmm. though there's a lot with Fine that is questionable (laughs) a lot of aspects about her design that I'm like okay yes this is cool but some of the things that they chose to do with how she is shown I'm not quite certain where that came from Mm. where we're really first introduced to her is a scene where she's on the phone with some outside agency of some kind. And they do this thing where they swap to talking in English. (laughs) I don't know what accent they thought they were doing, but to me it sounded like someone was from Brooklyn and very drunk. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, no, for me it's like completely, you know, like, like I'm very used to hearing English spoken by like, Japanese people only attending Japanese school but like it is pretty incomprehensible I think to anyone who actually speaks English and it's like so fascinating because this comes up a lot and is also interesting just in terms of like the final motivations of Fine which we'll get to but like well for one thing when she's introduced she is completely naked which is like I mean, okay. <laughs> she's naked a lot. She's naked a lot. I mean, I understand why, but at the same time, it's like understandable that if she's at home that she might not necessarily want to put clothes on. That's a very relatable thing. But at the same time, it's just like very absurd how she's like mostly naked, but like still wears some accessories and then it's just like walking around like whatever. It does feel almost like campy, I guess, because it is a thing that happens in yeah. a lot of series where the villain is going to be the most sexy character. But at the same time, it's, yeah, it's weird. But like, we'll get to that a bit more. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like, yeah, so, you know, I could understand the idea of like, oh, well, if there's a character who speaks English, that's supposed to mean something, but it's it's literally incomprehensible. It is the worst I've ever heard and I'm used to hearing a lot of (laughs) bad English when I'm watching Japanese shows so it's very fascinating for me yeah yeah there were a lot of choices with VNA that were were very interesting from a writing perspective too 
she's very very much over the top as you know like yeah there's there's antagonists and then there's villains Mm -hmm. she is a villain through and through where it's you know past disney levels of you know yes it's obvious that we should be not a fan of this person in any (laughs) shape or form Mm. but again it's very interesting how that you know energy of you are being told in every single sense of the phrase you are not supposed to like this person and how is that going to mash up against Hibiki's everyone deserves love? Mm-hmm. And without spoiling anything, that is the crux of the last few episodes of the season. Mm-hmm. Is those two um, ethoses kind of battling against each other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess before we start getting into spoiler territory, why don't we talk a yes. bit more about... Uh, Miku and Hibiki's friendship because or maybe more than friendship depending (laughs) on your read of the series because the way that they uh, sleep in the same bed together is very friendly (laughs) Um, yeah that's yeah uh, there's there is a ton of gay subtext mm -hmm. I found throughout the show and you know a little bit with uh, Tsubasa and Kanade but mostly with Miku and Hibiki Mm mm-hmm where first time you're introduced to Miku is Hibiki and Miku are basically cuddling together on the same bed on the top of the bunk. And that comes in later too, when they start, you know, having that, you know, sort of discourse with each other over Hibiki's secrets. Mm-hmm. You start seeing them sort of like, start like having the same energy of like a bickering married couple. Uh <laughs> Yeah. Including, you know, Miku, you know, going and like, no, I'm sleeping on the bottom bunk. Have fun. Uh, you know, sleeping alone. Mm-hmm. And they very much deeply care about each other. Early in the show, Hibiki's basically explains her motivations for joining the group as, you know, I have something I want to protect too. And mm-hmm. that phrase repeats itself throughout the season. And even comes back with Miku as well as, you know, Miku and Hibiki work through sort of their trust issues that have been, I wouldn't say broken, because it's very clear, even at sort of the ends of their quarrel, they still deeply care about each other. And that you can still have, you know, disagreements and fights and still deeply care about each other. Mm -hmm. And that's really the overarching theme with Miku and Hibiki. But there's definitely a lot of gay subtext there between those two, which for you know the time that that I think you know taps into a lot of the energy that was given also like in sort of the shows that came before you know like uh, Nanaha and uh, Madoka. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. Like it is something that you know watching because this happens like pretty much in the the midway point of the series. Finally, it gets to the point where you know Miku's in danger, so Hibiki has to transform in front of her, and like therefore show what the secret is and like finally reveal that she has been keeping a secret because she didn't even go that far before and like you know despite how much they care for each other she still did break her trust and it is something that does need to be worked out and it's like so intense to watch it's like no i want them to stay friends they clearly care so much about each other no Um, yeah (laughs) yeah so luckily it does finally work out in the end and like they're able to talk it out and everything 
Yeah, it's interesting because this is also at the same time when we're seeing like Chris lose her relationship with Fina, which, you know, like she did trust Fina, but Fina was like straight up torturing her uh, on occasion for funsies. So it's also not great for her. Fina was manipulating Chris yeah. a thousand percent. And through sort of the rest of season one, after you know, that break with Fina, Chris really is very much lost. And it's actually Miku that's the one that sort of starts showing Chris kindness. Mm-hmm. Miku takes that role from Hibiki as, you know, the person of, you just need a hug. And I'm here to, to give you that hug. Yeah. While Chris is very sort of reluctant to accept these things at first, you know, setting her, you know, no, I, I can't trust anyone. Miku is, you know, a very core part of, you know, basically being like, no, we're cool. You were friends. This is fine. You were deserving of friendship, which all just ties back to the sort of the, all the overarching themes with everyone. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really great. I love that was very uh, surprising, but I think it was kind of necessary for her to get that like reaching out of friendship from someone else, you know? Yeah. And I think it was very interesting when that moment is chosen. It's when Hibiki and Miku are fighting and and Hibiki is the one feeling a little more lost Mm -hmm. as well. The show uses Chris as sort of a foil for Hibiki in a lot of ways. And I think that they were able to use Chris to help Miku, you know, sort of process her own emotions and feelings Hmm. in a very, very interesting ways, which is shown sort of at the end of that episode when Miku starts to be like, you know what, you're fighting this. I'm not going to let you fight alone and joins the fray, even without powers. Hmm. It's nice to see for sure. Yeah. And also in that the episode, I do need to mention, uh, we haven't talked about him yet, but Genjudo, Tsubasa's uncle and like basically everyone's dad in the series, like the only important male character. <laughs> I'm your dad now. <laughs> He's great. He's a really interesting character. But yeah, he also is like, they're reaching out to Chris, also showing that like, you know, she's been reached out to before, but didn't want to, I don't know, like she wasn't interested in getting help. But yeah, this time he does his best to try to prove that like he cares about her as a person. And yeah, again, like he is of interesting kind of father figure to all the characters. Yeah. And like his big theme, which rolls into sort of the rest of section two, is very much the we are here to support you in everything you do, whether it's fighting or releasing a new album or whatever you need. We are here to be your your scaffolding, to be your support. And that support like extends like outside of fighting. And I do like that mentality of, you know, we're not just interested in you because you can fight the noise. We're interested in you because you deserve to have good lives. Him is sort of like that team dad fits that role so, so well, including at several moments where sort of, you know, he's revealed to sort of have his own sort of power deal. Mm -hmm. It's not like quite the adults are useless kind of trope. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a lot of that. Even Hibiki at one point is like, is there a way you can do this without sending children to fight? Mm -hmm. (laughs) She even just says that out loud at one point. Yeah. Which I I think is a very interesting call out to a lot of magical girl shows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It's very fun to see. But yeah, he's he's a great character and it's great that he's there. But he yeah, he was very important in that particular episode, you know, reaching out to Chris also going full dad, I guess. <laughs> I think that is also the first episode <laughs> where we see him kind of reveal that he can do a few things. 
Yeah, and that's revealed a little bit during sort of the early struggles between Tsubasa and Hibiki as well. Mm-hmm. He basically, again, plays team dad of don't make me turn this car around kind of attitude um, to, you know, stop, you know, infighting. Because mm-hmm. there is a lot of infighting in the first couple episodes. You know, Hibiki still, you know, is that cheery little ball of sunshine of, you know, I just want to be friends with you and help you. Why won't you let me? And it, it takes a lot for Tsubasa to sort of start breaking out of her shell. And mm-hmm. Genju and uh, Hibiki and Miku all play a very core role in helping Tsubasa sort of feel better about herself and about her own future. Mm-hmm. And to see herself as a person rather than just as a blade and just as, you know, sort of like, I'm here to fight and nothing else. Yeah. Her recovery, while it's not complete, is really shown so well in basically the quiet episode, more or less. Hibiki Miku and uh, Subasa all go you know, on like a group date and it's super cute and super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a little bit more of their personalities and you sort of start to see Subasa drop her shields almost mm-hmm. um, and start letting herself be herself. And the recovery at the end of that episode is so emotional and so like top tier it's great yeah definitely it's really nice to see because like yeah it makes sense that basically everyone around hibiki like has to eventually (laughs) soften up and like start to just be more relaxed and yeah again just be human again because i think that in a way you know tsubasa kind of lost her sense of humanity not to say that she was inhuman but and that was also present with chris too yeah yeah definitely yeah, it was really great to see them all like hang out and stuff and just be like <laughs> normal teenagers. Yeah. Hmm. I think that was like episode seven or eight or whatever, where, you know, it falls into the typical episode range of, okay, get ready for, you know, the beach episode or the hot springs episode. And I was <laughs> very happy to see it not turn into that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. While those serve a place, I don't think it would have fit the vibes of this show. Hmm. And I, I, I do like how they were able to have sort of the episode that fits that tone of the quiet spot before the final climax rise. Mm-hmm. I love how they were able to sort of address that in a thematic way. Yeah. One of the things with this series is, you know, in general, there are a lot of character design choices and style choices that are very sexy, which in a way that is uncomfortable yeah. to watch with a bunch of teen girls. So I do want to mention the fact that they give Chris large breasts and I'm like, why? Why did you do this? This wasn't needed, mm-hmm. um, but I'm like, okay, it, it's definitely, and that comes up a couple times where you get a couple unfortunate camera angles and it's like, okay, we get it. Just, mm-hmm. just move on to the next shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every shot is definitely a choice. <laughs> it's very frustrating when that kind of stuff happens. I also think part of it is also dealing with the uh, design of the costumes themselves, like their magical girl forms. And all of that. But yeah, like in the series itself, we don't get like a, a beach episode or whatever. And that's good. But also there are, well, obviously we have a nude villain, but also like there's a lot of like. Uh, <laughs> the nudist villain, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we also have like, what's it called? Like a lot of uh, like official artwork and stuff with the girls like half naked. So it's not like yeah. great. <laughs> no, it, fe- it feels that in other ways. Yeah. Which is definitely unfortunate and a little more pervasive in a lot of ways where i'm like okay it would have probably added more if this was dialed back a bit yeah and i've seen this with a couple shows Mm -hmm. there was another show extremely magical girl adjacent but die buster 
was one where I thought, you know, similar kind of thing where it's like, okay, this had a lot of high potential and a lot of very interesting things where the fan service started taking away from a lot. Hmm. I I don't think Simple Gear went that far. I think like, you know, for me, Die Buster is very much a prime example of when you take fan service way too far and it Hmm. actually detracts from the plot where Simple Gear got close to crossing that line mm-hmm. in a couple of different spots a lot of which was you know sort of the design choices of fine and the design choices of the girls in certain aspects but i don't think it crossed the line where it detracted from the story mm-hmm. which i think in general anime has it does have the issue where you know there's a lot of fan service and a lot of modern shows mm-hmm. it's kind of unavoidable to an extent uh, especially when it shows marketed for teens and older audiences, which Simple Gear is very clearly marketed towards teens and older audiences. And there, you definitely see that a lot in some of the, the camera angles and some of the costume choices. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important to at least, you know, as sort of an anime fan, you know, looking at like, okay, I'm going and expecting some level of this. There are certain lines that I draw where I'm like, no, this, no, I can't continue. But there are a lot where I'm like, okay, this is how it is in a lot of anime. So as long as it doesn't detract from the plot, I'm going to keep going. And I think that as viewers, we are rewarded by sticking through with a lot of really quality plot elements that I think probably would have held more a, a bigger audience had they dialed things back a tiny bit. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it is, I mean, most of the shows that we talk about of this variety are labeled like seinen like for an older male audience yes. uh, simple gear is explicitly shonen so it is for young teen boys i guess it is it, <laughs> yeah that is the target audience so it is interesting because again like very naked but then again it's the same target audience as cutie honey so there is a kind of like camp factor to it yeah yeah it's just like a thing that you have to like you have to accept like this is the style and then just i mean I think it it really is like a target audience thing more than anything because yes, if you you know watch Freakier, there's none of that ever. It just becomes like very easy to forget that like for other shows, like for other people, they expect it. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. Uh, you mentioned the the target demographics where it was targeted, you know, for teenage boys and stuff. But at least in, uh, uh, stateside, everyone who I've met who has watched and is fans of the show is either trans or a lesbian or both, (laughs) which I have found extremely interesting, at least from a state side angle. (laughs) Well, there are a lot of shows like that. I think another one, um, you know, Nanoha is very similar in that, like, I'm not sure to the extent in Japan, but I know for certain, like overseas that Nanoha has a very large queer fan base as well. It does. Yeah. And, you know, same for Madoka and, and so on. So it's very interesting to see that how that happens with a lot of shows. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I think that we can get into our finale here. So last few episodes. So this is a spoiler warning time. If you have not watched the show, it is definitely worth checking out despite all we just mentioned about it. I think that when it comes to like the idea of like crossing a line for fan service, different people have different lines. So I think that this series could cross the line for some viewers. You know, I tried to think of it as like camp 
because that's how I can get through shows like this sometimes. Yes. Yeah. I would prefer to just never have it ever, but I know that that's not necessarily going to be possible. But in any case, despite the, you know, like kind of sexy designs of a lot of the characters and so on, I think that overall it is a really fun series. So we have not mentioned so far, but a very important character to to the group is Ryoko Sakurai. She's like a, a scientist. She's she's always got a lab coat on. She's always like doing research and stuff. And she seems to be like a kind of maternal character, or at least a big sister character to the magical girls throughout the show. Until, <laughs> until uh, <the> yeah, <laughs> until suddenly, and to be honest, it actually did surprise me. Episode 10, I believe, is when it opens up to show that they're going to the house that we recognize as being Fine's house. And they get there and Ryoko is there. And I was like, wait a second, what's going on here? So they got me and that's that's cool. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's very interesting because uh, I finished my third watch through of season one. And you can see all the way back to episode two, you can start seeing the little breadcrumbs being dropped leading mm-hmm. towards the Ryoko's Fine reveal. Mm. And at certain parts, it gets super obvious in hindsight, too, because like, you know, there's a lot with Ryoko, even though she has sort of this maternal aspects. She also has a lot of other, you know, sort of problematic sort of, you know, interactions as well with some of the group. Ryoku sees herself as very self-important um, <laughs> as I am the rock star. I am the star of the show. Very high camp. And <laughs> that also translates to Fine, who is high camp. I am the star of the show. I am in charge. Mm-hmm. And it starts sort of like peeling apart where Fine has basically been using Ryoko to sort of manipulate the magical girls and manipulate the group into sort of activating this doomsday scenario where mm-hmm. Fine wants to basically bring the moon to crash into the earth. Mm-hmm. And I was watching this with a friend a, a while ago and they're a huge Sonic fan. They're like, isn't this Sonic Adventure 2? And I'm like, kind of in a way, it has the same level of camp um, mm-hmm. <laughs> as that, where it's, you know, Villains being villains. I'm going to do the big villain thing and bring about the end. And the theme of the moon shows up constantly throughout the show where Mm. there are constant little shots of that, you know, teasing, hey, this is important, but you know, wait for this. There are some shots where in a first watch through, I'm like, okay, why are they showing the moon? This is just moody. And then it all comes (laughs) back. Oh, they've been showing this because this is important. And in the big climax of the last two or three episodes, you start seeing Hibiki stretched past their point of, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the challenge of Fine's attitude of, I am the only one deserving of anything. This is, none of you deserve anything. And uh, Hibiki's attitude of no one is too broken for love. The last few episodes, you see Hibiki tested Mm -hmm. and you see her break. At certain parts where Hibiki is the one that needs to be shown that she is still deserving of protection and love herself. Hmm. Because she's taken on that role of being that person for everyone else, but she needs that herself too. Yeah. And you see that where she goes berserk to defeat Fine and she was able to do that, but then basically becomes this, you know, not herself and mm-hmm. needs to sort of like fight through it of, we know you're in, in there still, Hibiki. 
And it is ultimately the power of song and the power of friendship uh, mm-hmm. that brings her out of that. And they're able to sort of, you know, save the day with that. Yeah, I love that because like the final showdown happens at their school because it turns out that their school, which already was kind of suspicious because it had a whole secret base underneath it this whole yeah, time. Yeah, school with a secret base. Yeah, sure. That's not suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Turns out also is related to like the Tower of Babylon and like, and again, going back to the whole thing about like the bad English in this series, which is so incredible <laughs> to the point where it's like, I wonder if it's on purpose because this is a series that is so focused on the power of music and sound and Fina's final thing that she wants to do is to destroy the curse of Bilal, which is, you know, allegedly the reason why everyone speaks different languages with the story of uh, the Tower of Babylon. So like this idea that like, you know, this would bring everyone together and be able to understand each other makes me wonder if that's why the English is so bad. I hadn't thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Because yeah. that theme of of understanding each other comes up so often. Like in the earlier fight between Hibiki and Chris, Hibiki is basically like yelling all these things about personal about her. Yo, this is my blood type. This is these are these are my hobbies. This is what I like. This is because we are both humans and we can understand each other and we can relate. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense. That that theme of understanding each other mm-hmm. comes together in the end like that. That's that's cool. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I could just be reading into it. It could just be that everyone lied on their resume about their English ability. But like, (laughs) it is just like the level to which the English is bad. It's just so unbelievable, even as someone who is an English teacher in Japan and has heard a very wide variety of like accents and so on, like the degree to which some people have difficulty using. I mean, English is a difficult language. I would never fault anyone for not being able to use English. But like the level Mm -hmm. to which the English spoken is so incomprehensible makes me feel like it has to be on purpose. Like someone had to know. How else would it make it past the editing floor? I mean, directing someone to speak in a language that you're not both like familiar with Mm -hmm. can cause some interesting issues because it has happened (laughs) in other uh, even more recent Magical Girl series. Yeah. This in particular is, it is so much. It's so strongly that it makes me feel like that could be the reason. Because that is like something that I think everyone can acknowledge in this first uh, season. It's like, it just, every character who is supposed to be able to speak English, whether it's Fina or Chris or like American characters that appear later, no one can speak English. And it's like, you know, there's no reason for it because, I mean, forever people have been able to hire actors who can speak English if the character is supposed to speak English. It's definitely something that has happened many times, not just in Magical Girl series, but like Japanese media in general. There are lots of, you know, uh, native English speakers who have careers in Japan because people need these roles fulfilled. That's why I have come to the conclusion that it feels like it could be on purpose yeah and then i also wanted to comment because we were already talking about the sexiness of fine in general that her final outfit is really buck wild because it is revealing as heck yeah yeah (laughs) 
I want to say as far as like actual costumes of final villains go, it is maybe the second most revealing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, it's would you like some clothing with that boob window? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> one thing that I have to give it credit for, because it is very frustrating. And I think we've talked about this in previous episodes before. When, you know, you have a character who is so exposed, the first thing you think is like, well, this is not very good armor. And so there's actually a scene where someone like literally shoots her in the breasts and it just bounces off like it's nothing. And it is, <laughs> I could not believe it, but it was also like, well, that answers my question. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> I'm like, like, well, you thought of it. Yeah. Kudos, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And like, she's also like kind of like a priestess kind of goddess type character. So there's all that. So I guess it makes sense. But it's like, pretty wild <laughs> yeah they leaned it heavy on i have no other way to describe this but evil dominatrix mm-hmm. that is sort of the vibes they heavily leaned in on on fine for better or worse mm-hmm. where like it's definitely high camp as yeah. far as you know like just showing you know, yeah this person is super evil and does not give a shit um, <laughs> yeah yeah it is fascinating to see that whole thing. But yeah, so like, you know, she does get finally eventually defeated. And then, you know, the girls have to go and protect the moon and everything. Like the, the whole going out to space for like one final move and everyone, of course, presuming that they have all died, which is what brings us to that scene that we see at the very beginning of the series. It's very fun, you know. To see yeah. That. Yeah. One thing that I think we forgot to talk about, too, that's super important to the entire show is the role of the climax song. Yes. In episode one, Kanade dies, mostly because she uses this song called the climax song, where it's basically uses the full power of their relics and their gears without any regard for their user. Mm-hmm. And for most people, that means death, where basically they get one final swan song and then they go out with a bang. Yeah. And you see that with Kanade and using that song as sort of a threat of, I'm going to destroy you even if it destroys me. And you mm-hmm. see Subasa use that and survive earlier in the show. So that at least teases that it might not be as final mm-hmm. as it might seem. And it's shown really in that final moments of the show where they all kind of do that swan song and... In int- intending to destroy the moon mm-hmm. at least knock it back yeah it's a piece of the moon it's not the whole moon yeah yes yeah. yes <laughs> in order to destroy that piece of the moon to save the earth they're willing to sacrifice themselves you know really drives home the point at the end of you don't have to do this alone and Tsubasa and chris they all show together that we're in this together we're gonna do this and of course it's revealed at the end, you know, that Hibiki's death is, you know, widely exaggerated because there's four more seasons with Hibiki. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. very interesting to like, you know, obviously I'm watching this for the first time almost a decade later. Yes. I know that there are several seasons, so I know she's not dead. So it was like so that graveyard yeah. scene hits very differently than it would when the show first revealed. Absolutely, because like you would expect for it to end with like, oh, well, it looks like they died in the end. But no, it's uh, fine because the power of friendship and everything, as always, they were able to survive that final song. Yeah. And it's really fun because like they all have their own weapons and they basically summon these 
incredibly huge versions of those weapons in order to attack this thing. And it is very amusing. Again, very campy, very fun. Yeah, very leaning into uh, being super over the top, yeah. which, which I, I super appreciate. Yes, yes. And you um, see that a lot too with earlier, mostly with Tsubasa, you know, is able to summon, you know, this giant sword several times too. So it's very fun to see sort of that come back in sort of the end and have an impact. Yeah, so it's really great. And then, you know, of course, we get to that that final scene and, you know, Miku gets to find out that actually everyone is still around and they're going to all hang out together and they still have to fight the noise, but they're not going to give up hope. Yeah. It's, it's nice. Hope is always there through the power of friendship. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Fully optimized, mechanized power of friendship. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So was there anything else you wanted to mention about the series? I think this covers a lot of, you know, the things I liked about it. Uh, I'm currently working my way through the fourth season right now. Mm -hmm. I I think season one was a lot of fun. They definitely ramp up so much stuff starting in season two. The animation quality gets a lot better because I think, you know, season one kind of proved, hey, people like this. And they got a lot bigger budget for the future seasons, which shows in, you know, more drawn out transformation sequences, more songs, more music. And it's definitely super enjoyable and super fun, Hmm. fun to watch. You know, I'd heard the same thing like you said, Renny, about how it was like kind of idols, kind of mech, but also magical girls. And so I was very curious about this particular iteration of magical girls. And, you know, finally getting to watch it was a lot of fun, you know. The transformations are fun. The weapons are super fun. I think that getting to watch it after having watched the first season of Lyrical Nanoha was good context because I do see a lot of similarities. In fact, those two franchises have had some collaborative events and stuff in their respective games. The The connection is very clear between those series, but it's really interesting. Especially with Nanamizuki being in both too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nanamizuki is like in so many things in general but so many magical girl series and yeah i think that it's really fun to to kind of see this particular iteration and see the kind of sexy stuff is a little over the top but it's nothing worse than cutie honey uh the blood is a little much maybe for some people but again not too bad like i could handle it anyway on a sliding scale from zero to magical girl raising project it's definitely like a six (laughs) (laughs) sure sure yeah it's not as not as bloody as that but yeah so definitely a very fascinating series and i am definitely looking forward to continuing to watch it to see what happens next because i already know we're gonna get a lot more magical girls so i cannot wait to see how that plays out (laughs) yeah yeah Great. So before we go, I have a final question for you. So since you have been on the podcast before, I have a new question, which is what do you want to see in the future of Magical Girls? I definitely want to see more overt diversity. Like one of the things shown in Simple Gear, there's, you know, a lot of subtext. Yeah. I would like that subtext to be more and more clearly, you know, less background, more foreground. Sure. Very clearly, like, yes, this is a trans magical girl. Very clearly, I want to see a little bit more diversity as far as, you know, body types as well. Hmm. I think a lot of the stuff that I've been reading lately has a lot of that. So I would love to see more of that, obviously. And 
I want to see more sci-fi magical girls. Like I love how much, you know, Simple Gear took the sci-fi elements and then leaned in. And I want to see more of that. It's a very interesting thing. I think it's like the connection between sci-fi and magical girl is very similar to the connection between sci-fi and fantasy in general, where it just kind of like goes in and out and you can definitely find a lot of blends of it. So I think it's really fun to see the uh, see what happens when they take that approach. Yeah, and <laughs> lately, uh, the last big one that I saw that sort of leaned into more of those sci-fi elements, not the most recent one necessarily, but the most recent one I've seen was, you know, Macross Delta. Mm-hmm. The Macross series in general has like very loose magical girl elements, mm-hmm. but it's all, you know, it's basically Gundam, but not. <laughs> So I would like to see a little bit more emphasis on the characters and on Magical Girl stuff that's outside of sort of a Gundam or or Macross setting. Yeah. Because while both of those are cool and I am a huge fan of both of those series, I want to see more like more different takes on Magical Girl sci-fi that don't necessarily involve, you know, the giant fighting robots. And (laughs) I think that's I think that's why I fell in love with Simple Gears because it's, you know, it has those sci-fi and mechanical elements, but there's no giant robots, and mm. that definitely helped the show, you know, kind of keep its keep its identity. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, because it is definitely like a very distinct genre in itself. I think <laughs> it is. Yeah, great. So yeah, Renny, thank you so much for uh, coming on Sparkle Side Chats again. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, Where can people find you and follow you online? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at RennyPlayer1, or you can read my Magical Girl webcomic at KateBlast.com. And you can also listen to the other podcast I'm on, uh, which is Screen Tones. You can listen to that on Spotify or or Anchor. Great. Yes. And the links to all that will be in the show notes. So... Yeah, thank you again for coming on, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. You too.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you like it. And don't forget to tell your friends about the show if you think they'd be interested. If you use social media, don't forget to use the hashtag SparkleSideChats when talking about and sharing the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MagicalGirlAyu, spelled A-Y-U, and you can find me at Knows, A-Y-U-S-H-E-K-N-O-W-S. You can also email us at SparkleSideChats at gmail.com. Let us know if there's a topic you want covered or a fan or creator you want to hear from by filling out the form in the show notes. You can also join the Discord for this podcast to talk about Magical Girls 24-7, often chatting directly with me and both previous and upcoming guests of the podcast. You can also find that link in the show notes. Show notes can be found on your platform of choice or at anchor.fm slash sparkleside. If you can support the podcast financially, you can buy me a coffee at co-fee.com slash ayushinos. You can also support me directly as an artist there. I do commissions and also sell prints on imprint. Another way to support us one time is by buying something off the Amazon Japan wishlist. This helps with getting more access to Magical Girl content that we can discuss in future episodes. Feel free to purchase from the you section as we are not picky here. Original podcast music is by Hazel. You can find her on Twitter at A Few Bruises. Thanks again for listening, and remember, you are magical. <laughs> <laughs>